put yourself in a position at least two or three times a week where you feel nervous because that's really when you grow and you develop. My name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to use consultation surveys to learn exactly how to market to your customers, the most challenging part of having a 12-month product development process, and why they chose to advertise using billboards. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the storefront signage maker. It's an easy way for any brick-and-mortar shop owners to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use, no design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com signage. Today, I'm joined by Charlie Gower from The New Co. The New Co. helps people redefine their relationship with good health and how supplements play a part in that and was started in 2018 and it's based out of London. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, Felix. Good to be here. So you founded the company because you looked in a space and you did not like the ingredients that most supplements uh, were using. Can you tell us more about that? What were some issues that you were finding? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth taking a step back to that in terms of what we're trying to do as a business. So if you look at our company in simple terms, we are a health and wellness business that sells supplements. But before we get to the ingredients for us as a company, it was thinking about how we help people reconnect with what good health actually means in such a fast moving world. I think there's started to become a disconnect of what it actually means to be in good health. So for us, it was looking at actually how do we create that connection between mind and body and help customers on that journey, get into a place where they understand where potentially they have issues that are leading to maybe not such good health and how they can then create and develop a a lifestyle that allows them to fix those issues. And then through that, we, of course, provide targeted solutions to those issues through the supplements that we create. Makes sense. So uh, what's your background? Why did you choose uh, the focus on health specifically? Yeah, so again, I probably don't have an atypical background for most entrepreneurs. I actually started my career as a professional sportsman. I was a professional rugby player at London Irish, which is a team in the UK in London. Quite a lot of people ask me, you know, was that the right decision coming out of high school to take that route um, rather than kind of going into more traditional career? I actually think that the exposure that it gives you to professionals that are right at the top of their industry at the pinnacle of their careers is something like you wouldn't get in the corporate environment at an early stage. You're thrust into a very professional environment surrounded by brilliant leaders. I think that's actually what's set me up for success as an entrepreneur. You know, you're put in difficult environments where you have to find solutions. Uh, you know, I'm sure most entrepreneurs listening can vouch for the fact that, you know, no day is the same. So at an early age, being exposed to that environment, I think set me up for success. And then unfortunately that came to an end. You know, I have a, a biblically long list of injuries, broken bones, hundreds of stitches. And if you're in the US, obviously rugby is a very similar sport to NFL. Um, so as a result, unfortunately, I, I, I had to retire at a pretty young age. I was 22, 23. 
But with that background, you know, I launched my first venture. I was very set on becoming an entrepreneur and almost making that my career. And I launched a technology business at the age of 24. The business allowed software engineers to find new career opportunities. And for those that are more technical, it helps give visibility to open source software. We did that um, bootstrap, so we, we raised no funding. Um, the business had to get to a place very quickly where it was generating sales, generating an income that could sustain the, the business, the employees that we wanted to hire. And we were able to do that. And in the second year, we, we turned a, a seven-figure profit, which was fantastic. Um, I think that the business was probably a little bit too niche, so building it from there became challenging but it's still running today with offices in the UK and the US. But obviously, you know, coming from a sporting background, my real passion has always been fitness, health and wellness. And reverting to what I said at the top of the conversation, you know, how could I as an entrepreneur make an impact on people's health and well-being? And, and that's really where the new co came from. My co-founder and, and the CEO is actually my other half as well. Um, she'd been a long-term IBS sufferer uh, and failed to find a an existing solution through the more traditional medicines. And actually, when you go to the doctor, there isn't anything they can uh, prescribe for IBS. Um, so she sat down with her grandfather, who was a chemist at the University of Cambridge, and started to look at um, potential ingredients and things that she could put together to try and create a cure on her own. Um, and that was really where the new came, Nuco came from. And the first product that was launched was a product called Debloat Food. And since then, I, I'd let Jules speak to that, but she does no longer suffers from IBS. Awesome. So you mentioned that one of the skills that was most valuable between your your sports and athletic career over to entrepreneurship was this leadership, um, which I think to a lot of people might be might be a little bit abstract. So to you, what does it mean to to have leadership specifically in like an e-commerce startup? Yeah, it probably goes to what I said in terms of no day is the same, particularly in e-commerce. You know, every day you're coming into the business thinking about, okay, how are we more innovative? How are we challenging? What is expected of an e-com platform? How are we acquiring more customers? How are we thinking of reaching outside our existing core customer group? And it takes, um, you know, a very specific set of skills, in my opinion, that are driven from good leadership skills to be able to do that to come in one and motivate the team in, you know, an environment that is very agile, fast moving, decisions are made quickly and things change quickly. So like the leadership's capabilities that you have as an individual really help keep people focused, even through all the potential chaos that people will have. And I'm sure as again, the listeners can vouch for as an e-com founder that you face every day. Makes sense. So for anyone out there that wants to cultivate this skill, any recommendations on how to become a better leader? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a fantastic question. And I think like most leaders learn on the job. You know, you put yourself in an environment where you're being challenged. And someone said something to me when I actually finished playing rugby. They said, put yourself in a position at least two or three times a week where you feel nervous because that's really when you grow and you develop. And I think within, you know, entrepreneurship, if you're feeling nervous, it's probably where you're going to learn the most and develop those skills as a leader. You know, we're very fortunate the business has got to where it is today. You know, again, with 22 people, um, hopefully 25 in the next few weeks across the US and UK. So there's lots of different people involved. You know, there's lots of different personalities. And so putting yourself in a position where you're learning as fast as possible, and in my opinion, developing good leadership skills is what sets us up to success. 
Mm, yeah, I think that's important to remind her that I think uh, a lot of us will look for signs of whether we're on the right path or not. And sometimes we think that uncomfortableness or overwhelm means something is wrong. But what I'm hearing from you is that that is how you grow, especially grow into a leader. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, often those are the situations that we proactively in our professional careers try to involve, avoid. And I think actually as an entrepreneur, the more you can do to put yourself in that position, the more you will learn and the faster you become better as an entrepreneur. You know, there's there's not really, if you think about it, a very straight route into becoming an e-com entrepreneur or an e-com professional. You know, most people find a product that they want to sell and the obvious route is through your own channels and e-com. So there's so much that most um, you know, e-com professionals don't know when they take that first step into launching a website. And I think by thinking with this mindset of like, okay, how can I develop my own skills and learn as fast as possible? In my opinion, if you put yourself in a place where you might not have all the answers, you're going to have to force yourself to find them. Right. So this nervousness, uncomfortableness, overwhelm, use it as a North Star to guide you, like what is that direction that you should take. So you, you launched this, this technology company uh, for, 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 sounds like for software engineers um, to look for more career paths. At what point did you transition into the NUCO? So that business was running for about three or four years. Um, and you know, at the start of that business, I'd met Jules and we were together and she obviously evolved the idea of the new co and got it to a place where it was ready to launch. Um, and then I joined her and started to support her after the first few months post launch. God. Okay. Talk us, talk to us about the, the early days then. So what was the, what, 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 where did the idea come from and when did it start becoming more like, okay, this is a business that we should to, to, to run with? So, I mean, you know, for me, it was very much around the relationship that I had with supplements as a professional athlete, the supplements you take are very much about performance and the outcome that they have in influencing a better performance. And I think when I finished playing rugby, you know, it became less really about performance and more about being in a, you know, both a physical and mental state that is allowing me to be as productive and as successful as possible through my career. And I think very few supplements speak to that um, specifically. And, you know, fundamentally, the idea came from the fact that I wanted to create a brand and a business that would give me those types of products that I could relate to. Um, and from Jules's perspective, you know, she had an issue. Uh, there was not a solution to that issue in the market. She couldn't find anything that would give her relief from her IBS. So, you know, like any good entrepreneur, you start to explore and you start to develop a product that can do that. Um, and again, like I said, that's where the new code was born from. And, you know, she was fortunate that her grandfather, a chemist at Cambridge, a professor at Cambridge University, was able to support her in the you know early development of products. Makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, when people think about starting a supplement business, it does sound like a lot of technical skills you need to learn to actually develop it. So talk to us about that. What was, you mentioned the first product, was it the, the de-bloat food? Is that, is that what, what was the first one? Yeah, absolutely. That's still one of our hero SKUs today. Um, you know, as again, the reason why we feel it was successful, there was a very clear narrative about why the products were created and they drove a result specifically to a need that Jules had. And I think that if you can build a solution that speaks to a problem you have as an individual, going out and being able to then market that, create a brand around it becomes far more real. And people are far more engaged in the fact that you've then developed a product for your own problems that could then potentially also solve 
problems for them. And I think that creates that buy-in um, that's given us kind of the good narrative, the brand story, and all that stuff that people are really actually interested in writing about. And often parts as entrepreneurs, you know, we forget to really consider a lot of people that I'm sort of helping and advising at the moment on launching their own e-com brands. They forget about the narrative before the product came to existence and what was their problem and why was this the solution and why did this solution work against what already existed in the market? So I think for us, it was being very clear on that narrative and that story that Jules created. Yeah, I think it's important, uh, worth repeating. So you're talking about you need to kind of start off with a narrative, like what was the the origin of the, this business, this this idea. So you said that you had to be able to identify the problem, the solution, and why the solution works. Yeah, I mean, you look at Debloat Food as a product, and the ingredients in there, they are not going to sell that product to a consumer. And I know that sounds slightly foreign but it's actually the narrative behind the results that product delivers that it's going to be successful. And if you think about that as our first product and one of the hero products today, even the name in itself is slightly peculiar, but it speaks exactly to that problem. So the product is called Debloat Food. And if you're on the website, you can see the design on that product that says relax. I think it says relax a bloated stomach right on the front of the jar. So we were speaking very specifically to a problem that people have. You know, it isn't the ingredients that sell the product, it's the narrative and the brand, but then it's the green ingredients that drive success and the results and the retention of our customers. So I think it's just thinking about it as a whole picture and being very clear on what gets the customer engaged, what drives them to convert, and then what keeps them as a customer. And they're actually very different things. Yeah, I think it's important, especially in a, in a company like a supplement company or anything else that is highly kind of technical, especially when the ingredients matter. You're saying that ingredients, of course, do matter and the features, you know, quote unquote features of the product do matter because it is what actually will drive the result. But when it comes to the messaging, the marketing, that those ingredients don't sell themselves. The result that those ingredients deliver is what sells it. So you, even to the point where you mentioned that you, you name the product in a certain way or the packaging clearly talks to the problem and and the pro- the solution that it's trying to present. So how do you balance this kind of practical way of speaking directly to a problem and branding? So I think a lot of people would think that these two are conflicting where if you're coming out and saying, hey, this is this solves this very specific problem, you take away from your ability to kind of brand. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, it's a great question. And something that a lot of people, again, say to us, they're like, wow, your branding is very nice. It looks great. And, you know, that must be the reason why people buy it. And I think that, you know, that is part of it and it's part of the narrative. But I think for supplements in particular, everybody's interested, um, but potentially not that educated in what they need. So if you came to us and said, right, Nuco, I've, I've got a, I've got bloating issues. You know, I eat certain foods and I have real bloating problems. If you then came to our website and it just said, this product is Jerusalem architect, architect group, you know, you're not going to have a clue what that really means. And if that speaks to the problem that you have. So I think you just, as an econ brand that's new to market, have to be very clear again in the solution you're providing. So by humanizing it, helping customers educate themselves on which product's right for them, you, know, you have to be very clear and direct with the solution that you're offering. And that's why we took the route. If you look at most of our products, all of the logos and the, the narrative behind them is very clearly speaking to specific problems. Because if we just purely spoke about the ingredients, we'd probably confuse, intimidate people and probably lose them as customers. And 
you know, please don't get me wrong, the ingredients are absolutely paramount to everything we do. And when we talk internally, we talk about being a product first business because the products fundamentally have to work. And then the brand, the packaging, the logo, the identity is built around that to be able to deliver it in the right way. Got it. Okay, so let's talk about the the product development. So you mentioned that I think you said that you, your partner, your co-founder's grandfather was a chemist. Yeah, that's right. So he was at he was studied at the University of Cambridge as a chemist, and also I believe he was a professor there as well. Mm-hmm. Got it. So walk us through the product development process when you first came out with it. How did you know what to start with, and was there like testing involved with with like the target market? Yeah, absolutely. So as, as a sort of obviously we've here read the the D bloat product was our first product and because it was built to cure Jules's specific problem we were able to iterate we were able to test certain combinations of ingredients test different formulas test different ingredient sizes and get to a place where it was really starting to deliver the results that she wanted there was a huge amount of trial and error um, and I think because nothing really like it existed in the market and because we weren't able to find anything that delivered the results she wanted, we had to be willing to kind of test, create formulas and develop things that, you know, we were hoping would work, but might not give us what we wanted. And I think we were really happy with where we got to. Obviously, the results were that the IBS, when she felt bloated, it would disappear. And we were able to then to develop the product off the back of that. So, you know, as again, and I've said at the start, the story is far more real because we developed a product that spoke to a problem mm-hmm. that we had. Um, you know, we we'll probably get to it, but we're very fortunate to have a lot of very good investors around the business. So we get access to huge amounts of insight research. We work with some of the best labs in the world, which has allowed us to develop the products that we have. And I think from a, a product perspective, and I spoke at the top of the conversation about this connection between mind and body. When we look to develop products, we take clinically studied ingredients. So ingredients that have been studied, they have all of the information around the results they give you and combine that with sort of more holistic based ingredients, so Vedic and Chinese medicines to create products that we believe deliver the results that we want. Makes sense. So how long did this process take to come out with that very first SKU, that very first product that did the bloat product? It probably took around 12 to 15 months, to be honest. Um, you know, we started, Jules quit her job. And then in terms of getting the business live in January 2018 or thereabouts, it, it was about 12 months. Yeah. It's a long process. You know, with uh, product development now, we currently run about a 12 month cadence from ideation through to a finished good in the warehouse. So, you know, those are long processes. We want to make sure we develop the best products. As I said, we're a product first business. We have a fantastic VP of products who spends all day, you know, speaking to labs, doing research, looking at potential trends and ingredients that we can use. Um, it's a fascinating process. And I think that if you look again at the way our, our site's structured, each product fits in a, a particular need state. So within sleep, let's say people who have sleep issues have very, you know, there's not one fit solution, some with a sleep problem, you know, you could struggle to fall asleep and I could struggle to stay asleep and the product that you need to develop to speak to those problems is different. So we focus on these need states. So gut health, sleep, stress, and drive personalization through um, more granular categories within each of those verticals and the products we develop. Mm -hmm. 
Got it. So yeah, twelve plus months is a certainly a, a good chunk of time. That's 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 long longer than most e-commerce companies, e-commerce brands are typically used yeah. to. So as you go through this process over and over again, what are what are, what have you found are to be the most challenging parts of this this twelve plus month uh, the product development process? You know, at the, it's probably evolved since we first launched. So at an early stage, it was probably around forecasting the cost to produce that good based on what you're anticipating selling. You know, it's a challenge whether you're selling supplements or T-shirts or trainers or anything online is forecasting against expected sales and then driving a margin or a cost to produce that good based on that. So in the early days, that was was definitely an issue. You know, supplements, they have a shelf life, so you have to get that stuff right. Otherwise, you get product buildup and potentially, you know, you're not being as efficient with your spends and the dollars that you have. So early on, that was um, certainly the challenge with the product development. At the moment, it's um, as we've grown, being more aware of all of the different components that different teams within the organization need. So, you know, what does our wholesale team need? What does the e-com team need? What does the marketing team need to be able to successfully launch a product? When you spend 12 months and invest a lot of money in that R&D and the research stage, you want to make sure when a product comes to market, you, you do it right. And as we've grown, a lot of people have a lot of different needs within that sort of go-to-market phase um, as we're going through the product development. Mm. Now, when you are sitting down with the team and deciding what to focus on in the next 12 months, how do you determine what direction to focus on, what problems to solve next? So we have great engagement with our customers. We send out a twice yearly survey just to find out if there's any shift in terms of potential issues people have in terms of even the delivery mechanism of our products. Like, are they being consumed in the right way? Is, you know, are people comfortable taking pills? Do they prefer topicals? Do they prefer powders? So, you know, we're always engaging our existing customer base to understand where they're at. Um, and then developing products off the back of that. But of course, as I've sort of said, they have to fit into those particular need states so that people come to us. We're helping them on that journey. We're helping them understand, right, if I have, as I said, sleep issues, which is the right muco product for us? And they might get to a place, well, actually, we don't have a product that quite fits that particular need. So that will drive our internal need to then create a product that fits that. And are there like checkpoints along the way during these 12 months to, to determine to kind of, you know, I guess, course correct if, if needed? Yeah. Sorry, just ask the end part of that question again. Yeah. During those 12 months uh, when you're working on this, when you're developing a new product, are there checkpoints along the way to make sure that you're still kind of heading in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. So we do trials internally and we then bring in consumer trials as we get closer towards launch to make sure that the product resonates, to make sure that it's getting the results that we want. You know, those are critical moments through the NPD new product development process. Um, you know, fundamentally, most of the labs that we work with need quite a significant amount of lead time to then produce these products based on kind of the scale we're getting to. So there's continuous checkpoints with them. Um, if you look at our products and you can see it online, there's a lot of components. We're moving components you know, all over the world to get there. Um, so there's a lot of different things and different elements that can potentially go wrong. Um, you know, a good example of that through COVID, for example, we um, print the labels on the glass jars um, in a lab in, or in a factory in uh, the West Coast. 
and they actually closed for three months. So we suddenly were put in a place where we couldn't create any new components or jars. So, you know, there was a checkpoint where actually it pushed the live date of those orders or the replenishment. And then we had to think of another solution to get those jars printed. So it's very important you stay on top of that MPD process, particularly with a product like ours. Mm-hmm. Now, when you first launched, when that first product, the debloat product was was ready to go, what was the launch process like? How did you get your first customers? Yeah, so I mean, I know I'm speaking on a an ecom uh, podcast, but actually we're quite untraditional in that sense. So we launched through another retailer. So we launched with Netaporter, which is typically a fashion retailer. Um, they were moving into this category, looking at how you know wellness products fit into their existing consumers' habits. We were able to sign an agreement where they launched us exclusively for the first couple of months, which gave us, as a new business, huge amounts of credibility. It gave us instant brand awareness that meant that when we turned on our, our website, our indirect consumer channels, um, we were able to launch with an article in Vogue, which had jewels on the front, which was fantastic. Um, but it wasn't a typical route for an e-com business who would go through the paid social media channels or organic social media channels. We actually thought because of the product, because of the category being quite new at the time, we wanted to leverage Netaporter again to give us that awareness, but also hugely important, it was the credibility in the products because they were already a trusted retailer with a huge consumer base, already shopping online as well. Got it. And you were a brand new product at the time. How did you land that? I think that you know one of the challenges is to get into retailers. And a lot of times I'll hear from other entrepreneurs that you do need some kind of track record of success, that there's demand for your products. How were you able to land in, in, in a retailer with a brand new product, brand new company? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's something that a lot of people come and ask me about. How do we do it? And we were very, you know, don't get me wrong, the stars aligned. So, Netaporter were looking to launch this category. They knew what would resonate with their consumer, and it didn't really exist on the market. You know, if you look at that Deblo product, it's packaged in very luxury packaging. It is very nice looking and aesthetically pleasing when you receive it, but it does say Deblo on it twice in big letters. So I think that the way that we crafted the brands, we obviously had conversations ongoing with people at Netaporter about some of the design as we went through that process. Um, and I think that, as I said, the stars aligned and we fit very much with what they were looking to do with this category. And it made sense for them to help us launch it. Got it. What about the ongoing launches since you are releasing products uh, continually? How, how, do, how are new products introduced to, to the market? Yeah, so it's, it's a big part of what we do. Um, so new products, we'd expect to account for around 20% of our revenues across the course of the year. And we build to moments through the year where we launch new products. So typically, we aim for about four product launches. Um, and within those product launches, you can have a collection of products through the year. Um, so we build a lot of our marketing and a lot of our planning into those moments. Um, and actually, it works really nicely because... You know, you can give the products the airtime and the visibility that they need to have the impact on launching them. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. And you mentioned to us that one of the best marketing strategies was uh, September last year, 2019, you launched a campaign, the How Are You Really campaign. Tell us more about that. What was the, the, the idea behind that campaign? Yeah, so again, just right to the top of the conversation and what we spoke about, like health and wellness is not just body, it's mind as well. 
So through the How Are You Really campaign, we wanted to help people connect with their mind and the impact that that was then having on their body. You know, there's fascinating statistics about the impact of stress um, on the body and what it can do to you. And I think if you look at that as you know, a problem within particularly the US at the moment, those highly concentrated cities and everything we've gone through with COVID, the campaign was really there to help people feel comfortable with having that conversation and asking that question, how are you? And that's pretty much today and still is what we stand for as a brand. We want our customers to ask themselves how they are. And when I said at the start, you know, we're helping people reconnect with their bodies to understand good health. That all has to start with you asking yourself that question. Am I sleeping well enough? Do I have gut issues? Why am I breaking out with acne potentially? You know, all those questions start with how am I? Like, how are you? And I think that what we did and it just resonated really nicely with the customers um, that saw those campaigns. And we, you know, we did tie it into one of our products that speaks to stress. Um, But to be honest, that was not about selling products. That was about our vision and mission as a business of helping people reconnect with themselves and be more healthy. Yeah, and a part of that campaign was these uh, out-of-home billboards that you had purchased in inexpensive, uh, I guess, advertising real estate cities, right? New York, Brooklyn, L.A. Tell us more about that. Like, I think it's a, it's an area that most entrepreneurs, especially e-commerce entrepreneurs, have not considered. You know, out-of-home billboards. Tell us more about the experience uh, running ads uh, on there. Look, as an early-stage business, it's not the typical route to go down, but we like to think we don't follow the typical route. You know, that campaign was all about impact and message and i think something that um you know is is quite reassuring on our end that we got it right is that that billboard on mercer street is still up today you know we paid for that for a month and it's been up for nearly 12 months so you know i think that maybe no one's buying the space but like we've benefited from that hugely i think the company that helped put us up are obviously benefiting from it because people take lots of photos of it um so it wasn't really a typical route but we've never really gone down the typical routes to be honest in terms of our marketing strategy and with that campaign in particular we wanted people to stop have a moment, look at the billboards and ask them that them, ask themselves that question. You know, if you're serving those on traditional paid media ads, is it really getting that message across in the right way? Probably not. So in terms of like measuring an ROI as you would in the DTC business through your marketing channels, out of home is very difficult. You know, there was no connection to the product. There was no discount codes mentioned or anything like that. And I think it was because as a brand, we knew how important of a message it was. Um, and we just wanted, as I said, people to stop, have a moment, ask them that, serves that question. Mm, and there was kind of a lot of this like organic fallout from it where people are taking pictures of it. And one interesting thing that you mentioned that I hadn't considered was that for out of home billboards, they do not replace yours until someone else purchases that space. Yeah, I mean, that's typically how it works. I'm sure, you know, someone that works in that industry could give you a better answer, but ours has been up for much longer than we paid for it. So, you know, we're hugely grateful for them keeping it up, but I'm sure it's not typical. Makes sense. Now, you you mentioned earlier too. You hinted at the the raising of funds for for your business. Tell us more about that. When did this happen? Yeah, so, you know, I was fortunate that I sort of came from a business where I bootstrapped and learned entrepreneurship in in the hardest and the rawest sense. And I think that we knew that developing the products and sort of the early signals that Jules was getting an interest from investors and conversations that she was having, that it made sense to raise some initial capital. So the first round of funding we did was, was relatively small. It was kind of a traditional friends and family rounds. 
And very quickly, Jules was able to go out and raise a, a seed round. Um, and actually, at that point, even bring in some institutional based investors. So we were fortunate, as I said, uh, to have Unilever Ventures, an investor, Morningside Group. That coming in at that stage wasn't actually that typical for them either. Um, and I think that spoke to the category that we were going after and the brand that we'd created. Since then, we've done a, another round of funding, a Series A round of funding, brought some more great partners into the business. Um, AF Ventures, a fund in New York, who are absolutely brilliant. Um, and also Redo Ventures, who is a spin-out or a part of the family office of the L'Occitane skincare brand. Mm. Now, for, for other e-commerce brands that are... Maybe, maybe not necessarily considering this approach, but are now thinking about it. What when should an e-commerce brand consider uh, raising funds for their for their business? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a difficult question. There's no perfect answer that to that. To be honest, it's case by case. Um, you know, we. I, if I'm totally honest with ourselves, I don't think we went out to raise the amount of money that we did. And that obviously was beneficial in the way that we then discussed the product with investors and we were, you know, communicating with them. When it becomes all about raising money and that's kind of like the goal even early on or, you know, at series A stage, you know, I don't think it becomes as credible as a business. So it's a super difficult question and one I probably don't have a very good answer for. But if I was launching an e-com brand again, I would be very cautious of preserving equity at early stages because when you get it right, you know, things go well, you you can have a lot of success through selling online. And I think you want to preserve that equity. You absolutely fundamentally need to preserve that control. And I think, you know, Jules was paramount in that and going into any investor conversations that, you know, investment, great. If it comes, it comes. But fundamentally, she wants to control the business. She wants us to be able to be the decision makers for the foreseeable future and craft a business that we want. So I would say that, you know, if you can raise money, great. If you can't, don't let it detract you from what you're trying to do because it will come if you get it right. Um, obviously, some businesses, you need some capital to get you up and running. Um, but I think if it all becomes about raising money, then it's unlikely to be the successful business you want. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying is that if you don't necessarily need the money, it becomes easier or, or you're in a better position to get what you, what you, what you need or what you want? I mean, I have first-hand experience of that. If I was to look at my other business and say, you know, should we have raised some money? I would now probably say, yeah, we probably should have. But at the time, you know, we're generating cash. It felt like we didn't need to. But now, you know, if you can get some cash into the business that gives you that ability to trial and test acquisition strategies, marketing strategies, and give you some breathing room to feel confident in executing on your mission, it's going to help your business. It shouldn't be the end goal. If you want to do it mm-hmm. without that, absolutely can be done without that but you don't want to sit here and say it doesn't help to bring in some cash to the business because it does um but doesn't necessarily mean success or failure if you do or don't bring it in got it now you mentioned uh, that one of the keys to your your success is being able to focus on data and be able to track all all the data from from day one, which allows you to make better and faster decisions. Tell us more about that. Like, what are some of the like, when you wake up in the morning? What are some of the kind of KPIs or, or data points that you uh, that are most important to you? Yeah, so it, it reverts back to what I mentioned earlier, being a product first business. Our goal is to create products that become habitual and part of people's lifestyles. So. You know, our repeat purchase rate is absolutely fundamental to seeing success. You know, if we're developing products that people are coming back to buy, 
that means we're developing products that work. You know, you don't buy these products again if you don't feel like they've worked. So at the moment, we have a 70% repeat purchase rate across the site, which is huge testament, again, to the quality of the product. So, you know, that is a huge metric for us and one, you know, we had our hat on based on, as I said, the quality of the products that we've been able to develop. In terms of actually metrics, um, more granular metrics that we look at, Alongside that repeat purchase rate, you know, we're very focused on AOV because it's a really clear signal of us being able to communicate the benefits of taking multiple products in the right way. So if we're seeing that trend in the right way, basket size, all those things are really strong indications that your technology and your website's improving because you're able to make better suggestions, give more confidence in the consumer purchasing multiple products. Got it. So the repeat purchase rate, 70% is definitely huge. It's probably one of the highest I've ever heard of. And you mentioned that your product for its business, so it has to work, has to get results for people who want to come back and spend money with you again. So is it all about the product that has gotten you this result or have there been other ways that you found to encourage repeat purchases? Yeah, I mean, you know, just to your point, you know, think about if you had sleep issues and I sold you a product that helped you sleep, you know, you're going to, you're going to become a loyal customer. And I think that, you know, that's why I keep saying this whole, we're a product first business. Like it's fundamental. They were because if they don't, you know, you're not coming back. And I think again, just to repeat, it's just testament to the quality of the products um, that we've created. Got it. Now you mentioned the, the average order value as another metric that you pay attention to. And you were saying that the the key the um key here is the technology and almost like a recommendation engine that that has driven this up to, to make the right suggestions when people purchase a product. Yeah, so I mean it reverts back to the the last question you asked, to be honest. It's it's helping the customers understand what's right for them through the e com experience and communicating that in a way that it's easy to understand. So if you're on our site, you can see through the top section, we have a consultation that asks questions about sleep patterns, gut health issues, um, stress issues. And off the back of that, we make recommendations of which products are right to the consumer. Um, it's part of the website that we've you know, continued to evolve to get better. But of course, that then feeds down into the data that we're capturing. So if a customer is completing that survey and they don't convert at that point, you know, we're collecting huge amounts of insight, huge amounts of data on who they are as a consumer. And then we can use that to then, you know, remarket, retarget about specific products based on what they've told us. So I think that, again, with kind of the category that we're in, there may be a moment in your life where you suddenly need a product like this. So let's say you've just had a newborn child and you're not able to sleep, for example. So, you know, that's a change in your current lifestyle. So if we are there and we're talking to you and we're helping educate you on how to sleep better before you've had a child, you're probably going to come back to us and try the product if that's something that you want to use and test. Makes sense. Yeah, I'm starting to see this this kind of more, um, you know, just innovative, but much more high touch experience online with these consultations. I've I've seen another successful brand that sells bicycles that that makes these kind of questionnaires to figure out what's the best suggestion to make because it's, it, it mimics the experience that people get when they walk into a, a high end store that has a, a consultation. Now, do you have you refined the consultation kind of questions over time? 
Yeah, so it's, it's kind of ever-evolving. Um, I think that's the beauty of Shopify. You know, you can test things really easily. Um, and it's something that we continue to refine. Obviously, we've launched new categories. We've launched new products. So as part of that, we've had to update the consultation. And as I mentioned, we have this consumer surveys that we send out. That also feeds into the consultation. And are we actually asking the right questions to make the right recommendations? You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to look at when you see all the data that we have and the kind of impact that has on everything we do from product development to marketing to communication to education, our blog. So, you know, I think if you're a, a, an early stage e-com business and you can start to capture data in an innovative way, it's really going to help you as you build and you scale. Um, and we've obviously benefited from that hugely in the consultation that we have. And as part of that, we've continued to have to iterate, continue to have to update it um, to be, ensure we're asking the right questions. Can, can you give an example of how you use this kind of almost like hidden survey for, for marketing purposes? Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about the data that we capture through that survey, so again, just using the sleep example, if you tell me through that that you have issues getting to sleep and then you don't convert you know we have a very specific problem that we can then speak to through our marketing we can also then uh, you know use that through our performance marketing channels to say this is a audience set that has issues sleeping let's serve them ads about sleep products or let's serve them journal content about sleep products because we know they've told us that they have a problem sleeping they've not yet tried all of our sleep products so we can use that data in you know multiple different ways to market to them and in what we believe is the right way you know instead of me serving you an advert on instagram not knowing anything about you we're focused on, you know, obviously getting people to the site and learning about them to then speak to them in the right way about their particular problems. Yeah, I think I think the the key here is that when you don't, or when you are not able to collect this kind of information, you're kind of making a lot of assumptions and about about what your customers need, what they they want. I think one of the things you mentioned too was that listening to your customers has allowed you to quickly evolve and kind of adapt over time. So I want to talk a little more about the, the website real quick. So you you is this is this kind of survey, this consultation, is this, is this an app or did you build this in-house? How how is this done? Yeah, so we we built that in-house. Um, as I said, it's an ever-evolving part of our website. I think that we're actually going through a bit of an evolution of the site of the brand at the moment. So looking at launching some new features, new functionality um, within the next kind of four to six weeks, which is super exciting. And I think that then reverts to your question about KPIs. You know, everything we do from an e-com perspective is relate back to those. You know, does it improve our repeat purchase rate? Does it increase our conversion rate? Is it increasing the time spent on site? All those really interesting metrics that, you know, everything you do should relate back up to because if you're iterating on your site and those things are going down, you're probably making some wrong decisions. If you're iterating on the site and they're going in the right direction, then you're heading in the right direction. So I think that, you know, the hierarchy of how you do things all starts with what are your goals, what are your KPIs, and then you build your site around that. Obviously, it's a very new and early business. You have to get something up. And I think that, you know, getting a site up, you'll just learn huge amounts about where people engage, where people click, is that button in the right place very, very quickly. And then you can build from there. You know, I, th- I find I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs who spend huge amounts of time getting V1 of their website up, you know, ever and ever in a day discussing which button should go where. Like you don't actually know till it goes live how someone's going to interact mm-hmm. with it. And again, 
back to what we mentioned earlier, the joy of Shopify is that you can iterate. You don't even need to be that technical to move stuff around. Like our marketing team can move you know, images, they can move buttons, they can change things around, they can test things, they can trial things. And as an early stage business, you're never going to get any real, any more real data than the data that customers give you. So you can test it internally as much as you want, but getting it live and testing and iterating based on that is definitely the way to go. Yeah. So for anyone that wants to check it out, the new code is T-H-E-N-U-E-C-O.com. And I'll leave you with this last question. What's been the biggest lesson that, that you've learned as a company or you yourself recently or over the last year that's leading to changes that you're working on moving forward? Yeah. And I think that it's probably quite timely in that in obviously February, March time in the US and the UK, when, you know, the coronavirus hit, businesses had to really adapt quickly. And um, there was huge amounts of uncertainty in what was potentially coming and how, you know, the economy would do, how, you know, would people be still be spending? Would consumers still be interested in these types of products? Obviously, our product was in a good category. Um, so we were huge, super fortunate. But I think that that period of time uh, forced us as a business to reevaluate, look at ourselves over a very short period of time and make decisions with clarity that, you know, knowing where we wanted to be, but with the mindset that it was a lot of uncertainty. So I think that that's been a huge challenge this year and one that we've learned a lot from and we've been able to implement a lot of efficiencies because of the challenge that it put us in. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, Charlie. No worries. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.